Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. The climate change debate seems to be stuck between two extremes. On one side is denialism or indifference, and the other side is exaggeration and hysteria. Today, I'll be speaking with Matt Frost to discuss how to find a workable middle ground that can actually solve the problem of climate change. He recently published an article in The New Atlantis titled After Climate Despair, which I'm delighted to discuss with him today. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jim. I want to start off by asking you, uh, you take you take climate change seriously, uh, but you're sort of unhappy with how the with how the, uh, the issue is being presented, particularly what we need to do next. So you have a sort of a different strategy, which we're going to get into. But given our handling of this pandemic, has it made you more or less optimistic that we will pursue any strategy to deal with climate change versus just failing on all fronts? Yeah, it's a good question. It would be really hard to uh, remain optimistic after sort of seeing the different levels of failure uh, involved here, policy failure, technology failure, uh, at least by the United States. Uh, and you know, my intervention in the uh, climate change argument was an intervention in the discourse. And it's really, uh, you know, there, there's good reasons to believe that you know, the discourse is overrated as an actual driver of events. Uh, but I think that, you know, I was looking at climate change and I felt like there was a discursive failure there. Uh, and I think the same thing has happened with the, uh, with the coronavirus pandemic and that there really was a failure of the discourse. Like a, there was a failure of public sentiment to get to where it needed to be in the United States to address it constructively. Uh, and so in, in some ways, those things have broken down along the same lines. Uh, because it's interesting because this, because climate change is an issue in which there are all kinds of studies. Uh, it's, uh, it's, we don't know, you know, exactly when the effects are going to be dramatically felt that they're already being felt. And then you have this pandemic in which you've had sort of multiple smaller pandemics, uh, over, you know, over the past 20 years, all manner of studies, uh, warning, warning about it, you know, and, and studies, you know, advocating certain policies. And yet sort of here we are. And this was something that people kind of saw up close, uh, you know, and, you know, we had the Ebola and you know, H1N1 2009, where people were pretty concerned, probably far more concerned about uh, those pandemics than they are, than most people are, are about climate change. And yet still nothing happened. And I wonder about something which is, you know, further off and seems, you know, you know far more distant to people, whether if we, if we won't do anything about this, about a pandemic, how, how are we going to do anything about something which is, you know, potentially far worse, but yet, you know, as I said, you know, more distant? I, I mean, I think that's a real, uh, real concern. But one of the reasons that I've taken the approach that I have is that our solutions tend to inform our perceptions of the problem. And so in the case of, you know, a pandemic outbreak, I think a lot of people see it as insoluble. I think the idea that like the actual, like a, a full sort of lockdown response to it would be too economically destructive. And so therefore it's not, a, that's not a viable solution. And they revise their estimation of the scope of the problem accordingly. 
And uh, I think that, you know, in the case of climate change, as long as your vision of the solution is kind of comparable to the, you know, the lockdown idea, this idea that we're going to ration access to energy for future generations, uh, I think that that encourages people to, you know, revise their vision of the problem itself. And so uh, one of the reasons that, you know, I wrote that article for the New Atlantis is that I was hoping to reframe the solution in a sense that allows people uh, sort of to give themselves permission to uh, regard the problem itself in a new light. Um, I mean, if it sounds like I'm making too many concessions to motivated reasoning, I think I'm just being realistic in this case. Now, now um, your co the core argument that you put in the essay was that sort of the current sort of rhetorical strategy of painting a dark, uh, dark future because of climate change that could only be avoided by radical change into sort of a, a different kind of unpleasant future and unrecognizable future of austerity has proved and is continuing to prove to be a failed strategy for mobilizing action, yet it continues. Right. Why does it continue? Why is that um, strategy not changing? That's a good question. Uh, I think that people are still, uh, there's some sense in which they, they have to keep clapping for Tinkerbell uh, because they're worried that as soon as consensus slips around the austerity solution, then people will abandon uh, you know, any approach to it. Uh, I think that it is, you know, there's, there's some uh, path dependency. I mean, it, it's rationing fossil fuels was the first real climate change solution that people settled on. Uh, and it's kind of what we've built our institutional responses around. Uh, I don't know, I have not, uh, and you know, I, I, I'm not privy to a lot of the sort of coordination and, and the, the messaging that goes on uh, where, you know, where that matters. And so I couldn't really tell you why uh, people have hung on to it other than uh, I mean, the other reason, um, and this sort of more cynical take on it, is that it does happen to correlate with a lot of other things that people already want. So, I mean, if you already think that sort of humans are the problem and human flourishing um, is this hubristic, um, you know, fallacy, then... You don't like this kind of, you know, this consumer society. Right. Uh, Right. You don't like a market of markets and people are just, you know, cogs in the big capitalist wheel, then gee, uh, a future that an austere future, which allows you to deal with climate change. It also perhaps presents an alternative to uh, the current dominant socioeconomic system is pretty attractive. Right. Right. And so like the, the austerity approach, the rationing approach uh, does, you know, it goes along with a lot of other things that people might like. That's that's you know one reason that I'd suggest for the persistence of that approach. Uh, also, like people have not proposed a lot of other great alternatives uh, aside from dismissing the problem or waiting until it's too late and then taking on some uh, hail mary geoengineering project. The geoengineering stuff scares me a little. I mean, I think we should you know investigate it, but maybe, but it's. It, it seems like we don't have a good handle on what could go wrong. And it's, it really does seem like kind of a Hail Mary policy. Right. Of, you, know, shoot, you know, shoot, why don't you quickly describe geoengineering and, and kind of why, why that's not first on your list? Uh, I think a lot of the geoengineering projects out there uh, sort of attack the symptoms of uh, carbon pollution, one of which is climate change. 
And I, you know, one of the things that I hope people do is people start thinking in terms of CO2 pollution rather than just climate change. Because as I mentioned in my essay, we could wake up one day and discover that the effects on the climate are only the second worst part of uh, CO2 pollution in the atmosphere. I mean, there could be human health dangers to it. Uh, there could be other sort of ecological uh, effects of high concentrations of atmospheric CO2 that are even worse than sea level rise and global warming and, and you know climate disruption and the other sort of things that have been projected as being problems. So if you take a portfolio approach to all of the potential symptoms that could result from it, um, it's going to leave you less inclined to say, hey, let's shoot a lot of aerosols into the upper atmosphere to block the sun's rays and reduce global warming. Well, okay, you've done that. And now, you know, you, you're, you've gone down that road, but then you still have all these other potential uh, outcomes from carbon pollution, and you haven't actually addressed them at the source. Right. Uh, so that's why the, you know, the idea of carbon sequestration, free air capture and sequestration, and eventually, you know, over a few generations, getting the Earth's uh, atmospheric carbon concentration back to where it's been for most of human history is the idea that appeals the most to me. Right. But the the sort of austerity that we have to live a radically different kind of lifestyle, um, probably a much poorer kind of lifestyle, certainly different. And maybe you could describe a little bit what they, what the, sort of the austerity vision looks like and why that continues not to work. Yeah, I think um, one aspect of the austerity vision, I mean, for one thing, I don't think it could come about. I think like the, the reduction in, you know, in just meat consumption and dairy consumption that would be expected out of the entire global population uh, is something that is only possible when you need it to get the rest of the numbers to pencil out in your carbon pathway calculation. Um, I think there would have to be, in order to, you know, in order to prevent, what is it, 1.5 uh, degrees of warming, uh, that all of the pathways include these huge sort of lifestyle changes that could only be affected via like a mass spiritual conversion uh, of people to adopt a, a different way of life. And so I just don't think there's a gradualist approach towards any realistic uh, austerity. I could see some pathways that result in sort of uh, half successful austerity measures where um, people end up so transferring a lot of their energy out of fossil fuels into uh, less dense uh, energy sources, like maybe biomass, um, you know, solar, PV solar. Uh, there's some, there's, there are ways that you could actually reduce fossil fuel consumption uh, without necessarily um, starving in the dark. But uh, I think all of them would uh, require like a lot more land use. Uh, it, would, it, would, it would be a lot of suboptimal land use. It would um, involve a lot of lifestyle changes that people don't seem inclined for. So there is the problem, you know, there's, there's the whole problem of, okay, I don't like the future that austerity represents, um, but I also don't think it is a likely future. Right, so, so, you, so you're painting a different vision. So make the case for a future of abundance that is also you know a pleasant future that we would want to live in that we'd want our children to live in where they would have as all you know uh, the same opportunities uh that we have and eventually i think uh would have you know a comparable climate to what we have make the case why that is a realistic alternative and not just sort of a, a nice fantasy to keep us calm as the climate changes 
Yeah, that, I mean, that, that's the challenge. And uh, I, I do admit it's on me um, to make that case. I find it, I, I'm not at the point yet where I'm gonna say it's a realistic future. I'm gonna say it is a less unrealistic future uh, than the austerity alternative. Um, and the reasons I consider it less unrealistic, more realistic uh, on better days, is that it is continuous with revealed preferences as we know them now. Uh, people like energy, people consume energy so as to make their lives better. And any um, sort of any, any future that is in harmony with that is going to be one in which people have to do the least adjustment, uh, the least retrenchment of what they already want out of life. So, uh, you know, the, the old um, quip about energy too cheap to meter is kind of what we need. Like we need a future in which we have a zero carbon energy source that is cheap enough that we can waste it on human welfare. Um, and the way that we waste it on human welfare will vary from person to person, from culture to culture. Uh, but I have, a, I mean, I, I tend to believe that the future is going to look a lot like things look now. I don't think there's going to be any radical discontinuity uh, in how humans choose to organize their lives and how they choose to um, make their lives more comfortable. And so a future in which we can actually provide like the same amount of energy per person as people join the middle class is more, both more realistic to me and more salutary for human flourishing. Having energy that is uh, generated from zero carbon source you know, maybe it's nuclear, maybe ne you know, next generation nuclear. Um, I don't know. And I wish I had a better handle on where that would come from. But I consider an, a technological breakthrough to be far less uh, speculative, far less fantastic than the sort of moral or ethical breakthrough that would be required for uh, humanity to um, voluntarily change all their notions of flourishing and comfort. But the sort of the pro austerity camp has an advantage and they can tell you right now what you need to do. Don't eat that hamburger, you know, uh, you know, don't take a car, ride a bike, you know, turn off. They can tell you something to do right now where what you're saying is we have to wait. We have to wait for a breakthrough. So maybe spend money on research, but you have to wait. It seems like a more a more passive speculative approach. That's true. That's true. And that's a disadvantage of it. I think switching to an electric vehicle, for instance, is something that you can do to uh, complement whatever breakthrough may come about. Uh, I think sort of aligning your, there are things we could do now. So for instance, electrifying the transportation fleet uh, is something we could do now that is a good thing in and of its own right. And it would then uh, complement whatever breakthrough in energy generation we might be fortunate enough to enjoy. Um, so there are some things that we could do now. But yeah, I, I, th I totally agree that there are not a lot of immediate steps a person can take uh, to, have, to, to contribute to the overall outcome. I think the austerity uh, approach, though, suffers from many of the same things, like the actual net effect of one person's lifestyle changes are um, kind of negligible in the big picture. And even so, like I give people credit for making those changes. I think that that's like an, an ethically valid way to live. Uh, even if your own contributions to greenhouse gas reductions are overall negligible, uh, I think that it's a perfectly fine way to organize your own life ethically. But um, 
I, I think so in that sense, I don't think the austerity program offers that much more in terms of how an individual can contribute to the overall problem. It probably feels good uh, to know that you're living in a way that is not making the problem worse, uh, but the problem will remain. And, and your approach, it's, uh, it's not just generating energy uh, in a different way, but also actually uh, pulling, you have to either pull carbon out of the air, you have to capture it. Uh, we hear a lot, a lot about the energy, uh, the energy generating part of a solution, but you, you, you focus, it seems more on, on, on removing carbon in the air and making sure, you know, we don't generate carbon. Right. And that's the, the, like, I think that the human population is going to have to be very wealthy in order to uh, get around to scrubbing the carbon dioxide out of the air. Uh, I think we are going to need a lot of wealth uh, in order to make that a priority and in order to actually conduct that project. I think it's a worthy project. Uh, I don't necessarily want to wait for, you know, ocean acidification to absorb a bunch of CO2 out of the atmosphere or you know, whatever sort of long-term geological processes might uh, help it reach equilibrium. I think that it should be a human project. I think it is within our scope or within the scope of our grandchildren's uh, technological power. So it is going to come down to wealth. And so the austerity approach will not leave us with the surplus wealth and the surplus energy that we need in order to do that. So that's, um, like a lot of the economic studies of you know how 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 soon will these efforts pay for themselves? Like so, is climate mitigation worth it? There's like the old Stern report uh, right. debate. Uh, you know, it's worth it in that you might uh, compared to a business as usual scenario. But if you do come up with a, if you do pursue the business as usual scenario through austerity or rather than austerity. Uh, you know, you're, you're wealthier than you would have been if you had pursued the austerity path, um, but you have you know, more carbon pollution. But if you pursue the austerity path and your goal is to just be as well off as you would have been under business as usual, you're still not going to have the wealth that it's going to take to scrub the carbon out of the atmosphere. So that's why I prefer, you know, a third approach, like say, okay, how can we in two or three generations be wealthy enough to go after, um, the existing stock of carbon in the atmosphere, rather than just not contributing more to it. I mean, it's important not to make the problem any worse, but we are going to need to address the problem. And it would be great if our immediate response to carbon pollution was one that sets us up for a future in which we can then actually pay down the balance. Right. Just to be clear, your, your goal isn't just to limit uh, you know, to, you know, to limit, um, you know, the rise in temperature to a, to a certain level, to a level that's unlikely to make, you know, you know, earth unhabitable or something, but also then at some point is sort of this, to stop that temperature rise after a certain point and then kind of restore the climate. Uh, yes, exactly. And, and to restore the atmospheric carbon concentration that most humans throughout history have experienced. And that's, the climate's a part of that, uh, but they're also, you know, maybe biophysical reasons uh, that we discover in the next 10 or 20 years that, oh, you know what, we actually need to stabilize atmospheric CO2 concentrations uh, because human physiology functions better at a certain, you know, carbon uh, concentration. So there could be other reasons besides climate that we decide to roll back right. uh, the atmospheric CO2. Yeah, yeah, it's going yeah. to be expensive. It's going to be sure. 
you know, it's going to require a lot of labor and a lot of capital. Um, yeah, you have a you have a a phrase in the essay where you talk about the dark romance of imminent disaster. Is there just something about the idea that there's this dystopian future that's kind of catches people's imagination in a way that you're more you know you're, you're more positive vision? I don't know if it doesn't if as as humans somehow we 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 veer toward the darker <laughs> the darker vision or as americans i don't know but is that is that a problem people just seem to be more entranced by the uh, the drama of some of these really terrible scenarios i think so uh in the sense of like our media diet and the the sort of memes that we surround ourselves with uh there is more allure to catastrophism but i don't necessarily know how much that matters on the, the world historical scale. Uh, I don't necessarily think the dark, you know, the morbid romance, I, I do think that the, the morbid romance of imminent catastrophe is enough to mobilize, you know, certain people at the margins, uh, often very creative people who have, you know, large cultural platforms. Um, and who also think that it's going to mobilize more people. So I think that the um, that kind of brooding vision of the future ends up overrepresented in the cultural landscape, uh, rather than the kind of boring optimism of saying things are, you know, might be a lot like they are today for a really long time. Uh, so I, th I tend to think it's it is attractive. It does mobilize people both emotionally and politically. But I'm not sure it has all that much effect on you know, the actual political or economic outcomes. And just and to finish up, what so what do you want? What do you want policymakers to do? Do you have do you have your five point plan, or or is it more about how we should be start, or or more just how we should think about the future, uh, and 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 how we should think about the solutions? Well, I'm I'm not somebody with a ton of uh, technological expertise, which is why I felt like you know there there was not a lot of room for me to intervene in this anyway. But I absolutely think that uh, our policy emphasis should be on technology breakthroughs. Uh, we should be funding capture research, you know, carbon cap free air capture research and bringing the price on that down. Uh, but I don't think that there's going to be a lot of broad interest right now in whatever technology we eventually use to capture carbon directly from the air. I think that's always going to be kind of a fringe interest for people like myself and Bill Gates and Klaus Lackner, uh, <laughs> who I, I mentioned in, in my essay. Uh, so I, yeah, I definitely think that we should keep funding that research. We should keep pressing on it, but it's not something that's really going to capture the public imagination um, the way cheap energy itself might. Uh, and I do think that um, cheap, Clean energy is something that, especially as you know, the people in the developing world become wealthier, uh, is tremendously popular. And I think that that's like a, a key component of human flourishing. Like energy is kind of the, the primal commodity, um, and so an energy breakthrough is something that we should be pushing for and wishing for, like on a popular level and funding uh, from a policy level, just as much as it, we, we were in the 70s. I mean, there were so many kooky dreams about alternative energy breakthroughs in the 70s um, during the you know, petroleum crisis. But I think that those were all like constructive things to be fixated on. And so I think uh, an energy breakthrough is absolutely where a lot of human imagination and engineering talent and uh, resources should be devoted. 
My guest today has been Matt Frost. Matt, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Jim. I appreciate it. 